1: everybody and welcome back to new books in environmental studies a podcast channel on the new books network I'm Jason Newton visiting assistant professor of history at Cornell University and the host of the channel the environmental studies channel typically leans towards authors in the humanities today I'm interviewing two scientists We'll be talking with Andrew Barton, professor of biology at the University of Maine at Farmington, and William Keaton, professor of forest ecology and forestry at the University of Vermont. I think most people who listen to this channel know that environmental studies relies heavily on the work of scientists, and we should also acknowledge that the environmental humanities, environmental history can inform the work of scientists, so I think this will be a very uh, helpful and interesting uh, interview. Today, we're here to talk about an anthology, um, Ecology and Recovery of Eastern Old Growth Forest, published by Island Press in 2018. Andrew Barton and William Keaton, welcome to the show.
0: Well, thanks for having us. Thank you, great to be here.
1: I wonder if you could begin the interview uh, by telling us a bit about yourselves and how you got interested in studying forests.
0: Take it away, Drew.
2: All right. Um, Well, I grew up in the Southern Appalachians in Asheville, North Carolina. Spent a lot of time in the woods, appreciated old forests, big trees, and I think salamanders. I think that sort of started my appreciation and kind of passion for forests in general. Um, I, You know, when I try to describe myself, I, I say something complicated, like, I'm a forest and fire ecologist, and I'm a science writer. That's because I like to write not just for my colleagues but for general readers and i'm also a professor of biology at the university of maine at farmington where i teach undergraduates Um, my research which takes up a lot of my time actually most of it is focused in the southwest in old growth forests. but this is going to sound maybe a little strange for some of the listeners but i think it's probably a little bit of a foreshadowing for what we're going to talk about so i work off fire-maintained forests, um, but they're old, and they're big trees, and I, much of my research is focused on how climate change and changes in fire, so the intensification of fire, how the combination of those two things is affecting forests. I do research on uh, forests in the borderlands of the United States and Mexico called the Sky Islands, they're in southern arizona and new mexico and southern texas and northern mexico as well so i work mainly on forests i also have a new project on an endangered grass that only occurs in a few mountain ranges down there and then actually one of the things we're trying to do now is use what's called remote sensing that just means information from remote sources so there's this really uh awesome new instrument on the space station called EcoStress, and it actually can receive images from the earth and from forests and tell at a very small spatial resolution, it can tell how drought stress uh, trees, forests, crops are. So we're trying to use that to try to figure out how forests are responding in terms of their their drought stress. So I do a lot of environmental work in Maine as well. that I've been working on for a while.
1: Great, Bill.
0: Well, let's see. You know, I, I think it it harkens back like it does for so many people to my childhood. I grew up in the countryside outside of Ithaca, New York, and grew up uh, with forest land around and, and spent a lot of time hiking and tromping through the woods all over the Finger Lakes region of, of upstate New York. And, you know, so... Right from from early on, I had this really strong connection to forests and and being in them. But um, later on in my career, actually, when I was doing a a master's degree at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies in New Haven, Connecticut, this was sort of early to mid-90s. And that was right when the whole controversy around old-growth forests and the northern spotted owl, and Pacific salmon, and all of that was heating up out in the Pacific Northwest. And I was fascinated by a lot of new thinking and new ideas that were coming along at that time, like the idea of ecosystem management or working across entire landscapes or entire bioregions and working really proactively on environmental problem solving rather than reactively every time a species was listed under the Endangered Species Act or something like that. And so I wanted to be a part of of that that new wave of thinking, and moved out to Seattle in the Pacific Northwest, and and became heavily involved in the old growth management, planning, and conservation efforts that were happening at that time out there. And then uh, just had the good fortune to go on for a PhD at the University of Washington, studying with Jerry Franklin, who was really kind of like the well often referred to as the guru of old growth. You know, sort of the the, the person leading a lot of the new thinking at that time. So that was really a formative experience in, in my life, in my career, and 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 learning about not just the ecological and biological values provided by old growth, but also how we can better conserve old growth and how we could even modify the way we manage working forests to better emulate some of the, the benefits and services that old growth forests provide. Um, but then when I finished up my Ph.D. out there, you know, I was offered this job at the University of Vermont. So I moved back to the Northeast and I, I brought maybe some of those ideas and, and some of that passion for old growth here and have continued that line of research ever since in the Northeast. But I'll just add quickly that, you know, um It's been fascinating for me to watch how these ideas about old growth conservation and management, you know, arguably originated in the Pacific Northwest, but then have sort of um, emanated out across North America and now really around the world. And so these ideas are being experimented with and utilized in Europe and Asia and South America. And it's been really fun for me to be a part of that and to see that sort of global spread of these ideas.
1: Great, okay, well, let's get into the topic of the book and we'll start with the basics. So um, can you all explain what the term old growth means?
2: Yeah, sure, I'll take I'll that up. Um, I have to say that listeners might be disappointed if they're looking for a very precise and narrow definition of what we mean by old growth, which makes it more interesting in some ways. Um, it's really been challenging to come up with a consensus definition and this, this is for for a few reasons um one is that old growth has been described as a uh, a wicked problem in the sense of a vexing or really tricky problem to solve and that's because old growth has a lot of different meanings for different people um and it serves as a metaphor for a lot of the things that we value about it's a political terms, as well, and employed as a political term, so that makes it challenging to define. But the other thing is that forests are incredibly complex. They're really complex within a single forest, and over time, and they're very different from one kind of forest to to another, and that makes it really difficult to find one single definition that fits every single forest. Um, we can though identify three things i think that are pretty common uh, in people's definitions or how they identify what is old growth number one is old trees and usually old large trees not necessarily large but at least old trees a second is that these are places that haven't been disturbed by humans for a long time and then the third is that there's been continuous forest there in other words there wasn't cropland there 20 years ago, 100 years ago, uh, et-, et cetera. So every piece of old identified in the book or mentioned or referred to has one and sometimes more of those attributes. Um, so again, those three things. So old trees, little disturbance by humans for a long time, continuous forest in a site for a long time. There is a chapter. In the book by Peter White, Julie Tuttle, and Beverly Collins, that actually formally explores those three things and how they're related, how we can think about them, and applies them specifically to old growth in uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Um, now, you know, within much more detailed and precise definitions. So, for example, in the kinds of old growth that Bill works on, or in the in the Northeast, or in cove hardwoods, you know, in the in the Southern Appalachians, like in the Smokies, those places where there are forests with big old trees, a lot of snags, a lot of you know trees, tree bowls on the ground, and rich understory, very shady and moist, et cetera. In those places, they are much more precise definitions that generally involve things like. How old are the trees how big are the trees um they're multi age trees how much what's called coarse woody debris that just means dead stuff on the ground big dead stuff on the ground and other traits like that so they're more precise ones but generally at least in our book we take a pretty broad view of what we mean by old growth Um, and you'll see when we give examples of old growth how Uh, how much we've embraced sort of different ideas of what we mean by by old growth. One last little thing about that is that if you imagine a forest having been cut 300 years ago and it develops over time and the trees get bigger and you have dead things on the ground and the trees age and it gets complex and heterogeneous, et cetera, there's no real exactly like a threshold where you could say, not old growth, this is old growth. So it, I think it's important to sort of think as forests develop of this sort of continuous development of old growth characteristics. I'll let, let Bill sort of chime in to add a little to this if he'd like to.
0: Well, sure. I think you did a great job, uh, Drew. But uh, I guess I would just say that, um, you know, I, I think we, we ha- have come to recognize that old growth can include um, a variety of different conditions and um, architectural forms that we might look, look for. And you mentioned things like large trees and downwoody debris, and canopy gaps and a, a complex uh, architecture in the canopy, uh, large tip-up mounds, a whole variety of characteristics that we might look at. Forest ecologists, by the way, refer to all those things as structure, the structure of the forest. But I think what we've learned about um, eastern old growth in particular is that sometimes we'll have all of those characteristics. Other times we'll only have some of them. And it depends a lot on uh, a forest's unique history, its history of um, in some cases, uh, some degree of, of light human disturbance. It's almost impossible to find a forest anywhere in Eastern North America that has had no human influence at all. We can talk more about that later in the show. But also the history of natural disturbances, what types of disturbances like wind or fire or ice might have occurred in the past and how intense were they. So old growth comes in lots of different shapes and sizes and i think that's what makes the topic so interesting
2: yeah Yeah, great oh go ahead just one last little real quick comment to give people an idea of the kind of variety we're talking about people may have in their head you know kind of they think of old growth and they think of the pacific northwest for example something like that or they think of a dense shady forest but there's also chapters on systems, for example, like longleaf pine in the Southeast, which is very open and has fire. Naturally, fire would occur every two or three years. But the trees are old, many of the tracks have been continuous for a long time. And so that's old growth as well, which you know brings in a lot of variety and sort of what we mean by old growth.
1: Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that variety. Um, So this is an anthology uh, actually edited by Bill and Drew, but there's experts in in different regions and experts on different topics um, uh, writing chapters in this book. So, uh, you know, if you guys could describe uh, maybe some of the different types of old growth that are discussed in this book, um how they're different from one another uh let's start with uh, let's go into that
2: okay so we already kind of got a little head start on that i'm going to just real quickly describe four of the old growth ecosystems there are many many more but we don't have time to discuss all of them so um so one of them would be like in great smoky mountains national park in those protected kind of middle and lower elevation coves. These are places that are moist, they're shady, they have a lot of understory vegetation, big old trees, it, they have gaps in the canopy, they have a lot of dead stuff all over the place. They're messy looking, they're beautiful and messy looking. Um, so that's one example. Here's a second example that's similar and that would be the sorts of forest that Bill will describe more where he does a lot of his work. And those are also uh very heterogeneous they have gaps they have big trees maybe not as big as the ones in cove hardwoods but again very shady very moist etc and then the one i described a minute ago long leaf pine very open big pine trees um, a lot of herbaceous plants on the forest floor but a lot of sunlight very dry and fire naturally would occur in these places every two to four years and kind of beat back keep back at a competing vegetation. And then one more I want to mention, which is a very northern forest. There's a whole chapter on this. This is boreal forests in in Canada. So these are forests that are mainly spruces, firs, and jack pine, and some red pine, and some hardwoods mixed in, but very much a boreal spruce and fir kind of forest. So these places are completely different than any of the the old growth that I've described so far. These are places that burn about every 50 to 100 years, but the fires are not light, low-severity surface fires like in Longleaf Pine. These are fires that burn the whole forest down pretty much, and you get a whole new stand coming back up. So four very, very different kinds of uh, forests. They're different in terms of the density of the trees, in terms of... How shady, how dry they are, the tree sizes, the amount of debris on the ground. If you stand in them, they feel very, very different from each other. These differences are mainly the result, we'll look more into this in a moment, but they're mainly the result of differences in their disturbance regimes. What I mean by disturbance regimes is the typical natural disturbances that occur there. The longleaf pine has low severity surface. Boreal forest, really severe fires that replace the entire stand. Whereas the other two forests, the Cove forest and the northern hardwoods forest, um, those are places that don't have much fire tend to have wind and eye damage and they form small gaps in the canopy where new trees come in. So that give you an idea of the variety and sort of the differences in disturbance and the way these ecosystems look.
1: Great. Um, can you describe the geological and climatological history that created the forest that we see today in the east?
2: Yeah, I think that um, there are a few layers to think about. Now, we don't have a lot of time, so I have to admit I'm presenting these in a pretty generalized and probably simplistic manner. But let me just try this a little bit. So we've got like those four farts that I just described to you. They look really different from each other. And then there's a layer which is the disturbances that are partly responsible for why they look so different. You know, why there's such big trees in the cove hardwoods, why in the boreal forest trees never get that large, those sorts of things. So there's the disturbances then, but underlying the disturbances, that is the reason that there's fire in some places and wind and ice are more important than other places, um, and you have certain kinds of species in some places and not others is because The climate and the underlying soils are different from each other. So if we were to try to figure out what determines why a forest looks the way it does, and let's say an old-growth forest, we would want to know what's the normal temperature kind of climate there. What's the moisture regime? Is it a dry place? Is it a moist place? Is there a dry season? And we want to know something about the land itself the soils and the topography. So we can think of those things, the climate and the geology, as causing the disturbance regime, which then determines what the forest is actually like. So for example, the longleaf pine forest occurs in the coastal plains of the deep south. So those are places that tend to be sandy, they're flat, they're hot, and they dry out a lot. And so, because of that, there are certain species that occur there that can tolerate dry conditions, hot conditions, but it also creates this natural fire regime where fires occur every few years. So, that is why they look the way they do. To the coast and Great Smoky Mountains National Park, for example. And that's a place where it's very moist. Um, it's, cold but not that cold so you have a whole different set of species and fire really is not that common a natural part of that generally speaking so wind and ice become really important as disturbances so you tend to get a really dense forest that develops over time it has a lot of dead things on the ground and then you go to the boreal forest you have completely different conditions cold conditions it's surprisingly it's pretty dry compared to places like northern hardwoods and the cove hardwoods so it's dry enough so that every 50 years or a hundred years when the fuels what I mean by that is live trees and dead trees have built up enough you get a dry year and boom get a big fire and it and it uh you know kills just about everything in the stand you have a new stand that comes up so you can see from this that climate and the underlying soils in part determine what the disturbances are like, and that determines what the forest is like and what the old-growth forest is actually like. So I'll leave it at that and let Bill fill in some of the details of that.
0: Oh no, I think you did a great job, Drew.
1: Okay, great. Um, So can we talk a little more about the disturbances, but maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, human disturbances and, you know, what the forest looked like before European contact and uh, Native American people's interactions with the forests.
0: Okay, sure. Well, I'll give that one a shot. Um, First of all, I just wanted to make sure that we distinguish between a couple of really important concepts here. So when we're talking about old growth, what we really just mean is an older developmental condition in forests. So a structure and architecture and a whole suite of processes and functions that forests perform that develop as forests age. Now, if we think about the landscape that we might have had or that that we did have here prior to European settlement, much of that forest would have been what we refer to as primary forest. Now, primary is not exactly the same thing as old growth. Primary just means that it was never cleared by human, humans before. And so we need to think of old growth as kind of a subset of that larger mosaic of primary forests. Okay, so with that understanding, um, you'll maybe now appreciate that there is some debate as to how much of that primary forest landscape was influenced by indigenous or aboriginal people, what we now call Native Americans. Um, Thinking around this topic has changed dramatically over past decades. If we went back to the 50s or 60s, maybe even 70s, and we were having this conversation, you might have heard almost romanticized notions about what Eastern forests looked like, you know, we would have uh, maybe referred to them as pristine and, um, you know, covering the, blanketing the landscape, um, un, unbroken. And you've probably all heard the, the 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 fable of the squirrel that could hop from tree to tree, from Florida to, to Maine. You know, those kinds of ideals or, or notions were, were were prevalent then. But the thinking really began to change, particularly in the 80s and 90s, I would say as historical ecologists and anthropologists and others researched the role that, that uh, indigenous peoples or Native Americans played in, in modifying their environment. And we know that Native Americans interacted with forests in lots and lots of ways. They burned forests to create openings for, for game that they could hunt or to create berry fields in the mid-Atlantic states. Uh, They had very sophisticated and complex what we might even call agroforestry systems in which they they thin forest or they, they underburned them and modified them in a variety of ways so they could underplant with various different crops like squashes and, and tubers and a whole variety of things. And so I think that you know, we, we developed this appreciation that many forests you know, had this strong Native American influence but then it's been interesting to to see how the science has explored that further and of course the what makes science so interesting is that there's always something to debate, right? We can always disagree about things, and that's how we advance the science. We have to have debate and disagreement. That's a good thing. And so we have others that have challenged the idea that that Native American influence was pervasive, you know, that it occurred everywhere in the Northeast, you know, and they have pointed out that there are, for example, asynchronies or mismatches between, uh, periods over the last 14,000 years, what we refer to as the Holocene, basically the, the time since, since deglaciation, there've been mismatches between periods in time when there was a lot of fire and when, um, indigenous populations were highest. So, you know, maybe the fire that we see in the paleo record is mostly driven by climate as opposed to Native Americans. That's one, one way of thinking. Um. And then others, I would say the most sort of agreed upon or, or contemporary view is that um, there was a strong Native American influence, but it tended to be somewhat localized. So concentrated around settlements along trade routes uh, and those sorts of things. And also that degree of Native American influence varied a lot with the populations of indigenous peoples and also how migratory they were so of course we're talking about a huge diversity of cultures and it's there's a huge danger in in generalizing about these sorts of things but in parts of of eastern north america like the carolinas and virginia and maryland kind of southeast and mid-atlantic states a lot of those cultures were were more fixed in terms of their settlement patterns whereas in parts of the northeast they were, they were more transient. They, they, they moved settlements around. And so there are differences like that that were then manifest in how Native Americans influenced forests. Forest. So if, uh, if we take all of this, we put all of this together, the debate that's played out over the last 30 or 40 years, I think we can agree that it's always important to remember and to keep in mind that Native American influence. And that was part of these systems. You know, those were intrinsic processes that these systems are, are adapted to. They played out over almost evolutionary timescales. And yet those influences were not ubiquitous. They weren't everywhere. They were, they were localized. They were concentrated um, and, and, and varied, you know, across eastern North America. So, you know, that leaves us with an idea then that we had these primary forest landscapes of which some component was old growth. And then there was also a spectrum or a continuum of human influence. So you end up with this idea or this concept maybe of eastern old growth as a highly dynamic system. It was varied over time and space, as Drew has said, um, most strongly because of natural disturbances, but also the variations in the underlying geophysical environment, like topography and soils, and climate, but, but also uh, varying with degree of human influence. So a highly diverse, highly dynamic landscape and um, old growth, again, I'll just say it one more time, came in lots of different shapes and sizes, um, but it was always just one component of that highly dynamic landscape.
1: Great. Right. So, um, you know, we, we talked about some of the differences in old growth, and, you know, I think a lot of us uh, who aren't uh, familiar with the literature might think of the uh, great redwood forests in the West as, as, you know, the epitome of American old growth forests. So can we talk about the differences between uh, old growth forests in the American West and, and the American East?
0: Sure. I'd be glad to take that one on as well. So there are probably more similarities than there are differences, but um, there are also some, you know, very interesting and, and unique differences in, in Eastern old growth forests. Um, but before we get into this, I mean, it's important to, to acknowledge that Western forests are just as deser- as diverse as Eastern forests. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're never, we're never just talking about one thing here. But I think that in, in most people's minds, if you say, old growth forests of the Pacific Northwest or of the, of the West, they're probably thinking of those temperate rainforests in the Pacific Northwest from Northern California up through Washington and then up through British Columbia and Southeast Alaska. Um, and so there we're talking about moist temperate forests that have a very, very high degree of structural or architectural complexity. And that's where, again, old growth ecology Arguably, got its start. Um, just describing those characteristics that that Drew has already reviewed, and we we find many of those same characteristics in the east. The the, the variation in tree sizes and ages that which is a. Dist- Distinguishing characteristic of old growth, at least uh, moist temperate old growth, that you have a wide range of tree ages and sizes, the the higher densities of large trees, the complex canopies, the gappiness, the, the tip up mounds, the downwoody debris. So we find all those same characteristics in many of our eastern forests. Although you know there are exceptions like the fire dependent pine systems that Drew mentioned, um, but we often find those characteristics to some Somewhat lesser degree so some of those uh, structural features are a little bit more muted they're you know the trees aren't, aren't quite as large the gaps aren't as big the canopies aren't as tall um, in other cases though we find structure here that's every bit as grand and, and as impressive as the Pacific Northwest uh, you know I, I still have a lot of friends and colleagues that, that work in the Pacific Northwest and they're very proud out of their big trees there and, and, and somewhat condescending towards our smaller trees here in, in the east. But I always remind them that we have the biggest tip-up mounds, for example. And tip-up mounds are one of my favorite features of old growth forests. When they're, they're, they're created when a tree blows over and its root system uproots. And we know that tip-up mounds provide very interesting and unique habitats for many plants and animals. That's a whole nother story. Anyway, we have bragging rights some things here in the east that they don't have in the pacific northwest but in most cases what we're talking about is a system that's a little bit more um a little bit more subdued compared to the pacific northwest but but no less majestic or inspiring um it just maybe takes a a slightly recalibrated eye to appreciate and i just want to say one more thing about about oil growth in general while we're we're on this topic maybe of aesthetics that you know if, if there's one Distinguishing characteristic of a moist old-growth system, and I I keep saying moist because I'm really differentiating with one of these dry fire-dependent systems like the long needle pine in the southeast. If there's one distinguishing distinguishing characteristics characteristic, it's that they're messy, that they have high degree of complexity, and to appreciate that complexity, to appreciate that messiness, we do have to kind of change the way we look at a forest and the way we interact with it. You know, so rather than an aesthetic built around being able to see through a forest, the sort of open park-like condition that uh, Europeans, for example, really emphasize in in some of their tightly managed forests, you know, here we need to appreciate that complexity, that messiness, and understand that a messy forest is a healthy forest. And, you know, that that leads directly then into a lot of the values that old growth provides and 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 why it provides those habitats and those functions that younger forests don't. And that's because they are messy. They are complex. Great, I want
2: to yeah. put, put, I want to put in one other one other plug for eastern old growth. Um, we haven't actually mentioned our very wet old growth forests. So there's a great chapter in the book on bottom land hardwood forests, for example, and on and there's some mention of swamp forest. So the maximum age for a bald cypress in a swamp forest in North Carolina has now been pushed back to over 2,000 years old, an individual tree. So that kind of starts competing with, you know, obviously with Douglas firs and redwoods, et cetera. Just a little plug for the eastern forest
1: yeah yeah and I, i'm also partial to the eastern white pine so you know we, we all have our kind of favorite ecosystems oh, yeah. and favorite trees so uh okay so absolutely let's move, let's move on to um the you know some of the problems surrounding the term old growth you know it can be a kind of contentious term and, and some people are even suggesting you know shouldn't even use the term old growth, but maybe just old forests because there's so much baggage with the term old growth. So uh, does somebody want to talk about that?
0: Sure. I think we'd probably both like to weigh in on this one. I mean, just as you said, Jason, there is a lot of baggage around this. And, you know, there have been years of debate, decades of debate about how to define old growth forests. What is it really? And I'll just tell you where I come down on this issue. For me, it's not a matter of having a strict definition or strict criteria. I personally care more about the functions that forests provide. What kind of habitat for biodiversity are they providing? How well are they regulating hydrologic regimes, the infiltration of rainwater and the, the slow release of that to streams? how How well are they functioning at sequestering and storing carbon and helping to to regulate the earth's climate? Those kinds of functions. and i am intrigued by the idea that we could define old growth based on certain functions that it's providing rather than a strict definition of age or or even structure in some cases and And that frees us up a little bit it 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 It, it, it loosens our the, the way we think about this because we could think about. A variety of different architectural or structural conditions. We could think about a range of past human influences, both indigenous as well as sort of post-colonial. We could think about um, the, the the multiple pathways along which forests develop. And here's a, a more advanced concept in ecology, but the sort of contemporary view of succession that forests don't always develop along one predictable linear pathway that forests can develop in lots of different ways depending on uh, how they interact with natural disturbances. And and that in turn leads to a lot of different outcomes late in succession, a lot of different old forest structures and conditions. So we can embrace a wide range of variability, but what we really care about are functions like habitat and climate regulation and hydrology and high-quality streams and, and pollination services and, and lots of other things. Drew also mentioned this idea of continuity, continuity with the past, and I think that's an intriguing one um, that we could also think of as occurring along a continuum or a spectrum. Drew, do you want to weigh in?
2: Oh, just real briefly, I, I think, you know, there, I think there are a lot of words we use in science that we don't have don't have and don't need precise definitions of i mean we use the word ecosystems a lot but we mean slightly different things about it than people you know do research on and talk about different aspects of it and i think as long as we you know we're using that word just as an identifier for the general subject we're talking about and then focus in on the things we're interested in like what bill just described the function you know how it operates how it affects infiltration of of rainfall, et cetera, I think it's fine. I mean, we use words that way all the time. I mean, this is...
0: um, Yeah. And what we mean here are sort of a unique set of functions that are provided by late successional or older forests.
2: Right, nobody objects to people using the word freedom, for example, even though we don't have a very precise definition of what we mean by freedom. But people know what we're talking about in general and then people emphasize different parts of that. So sometimes I think people get too hung up on, we need a precise definition of this, but we don't, I don't think, I think for all the reasons Bill just described.
1: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so as I mentioned, there's you know different chapters um, written by specialists in, in different subjects. Uh, I know you know there's been a lot of popular attention recently on this idea of the wood wide web or this network of mycelian roots under the forest floor. And there's a wonderful chapter in the book on underground ecology. So um, could we maybe briefly describe these interactions?
2: Yeah, I can get us uh, started a little bit. Um, I think one of the things I should start by saying is that I'm certainly not comfortable uh, representing what we know about the low ground ecology of old growth forests. And I would really encourage people to read about it. There's a lot of good stuff out there. And Tim Fahey's chapter is fantastic. A great summary of what we know and really importantly, what we don't know about what goes on under the ground. So there are a few things that that are really interesting that I find interesting in this chapter. One is some of what's beginning to be revealed about how these below ground interactions change as forests develop through time. We need to know a lot more about it, but they seem to become more complex and they definitely do change. Also, how clear it is of the interaction between what happens above ground and what happens below ground so bill mentioned those tip-up mounds so apparently those tip-up mounds are really important in they change what goes on under the ground and they're really important in creating um, what we might call micro topographic I'll get to that in a second micro topographic diversity across forests what we mean by that is differences from one place to another in sort of the level of the ground, but also differences from one place to another and what the soils are like underneath the ground. And that's really important for promoting diversity. So one place might be better for this set of species and another place for another set of species. So we're figuring out, and Tim summarizes this really well, how important these might be. Now, a lot of people are probably interested in this wood wide web. Which is been some details are course, in those moist Pacific Northwest old growth. And here's the thing, we really don't know that much about the East. You know, there's probably reason to think that that probably exists in the East as well. What we're talking about is trees being connected under the ground by mycorrhizal connections, which are fungi that actually are attached to the roots and extend the reach of the roots so that they can gather more nutrients and take up more water. So there's a very intimate and mutualistic relationship between mycorrhizae and trees. And we found in the Pacific Northwest that they're connected. That may be the case in the East too in old growth. We just don't know it. So I think the last point is you probably can see that we know a whole lot more about what goes on above the ground and what goes on below the ground. And we need to know more.
1: Great. So we've talked, you know, quite a bit about um, the past and and, uh, past uh, disturbances in the forest and and the natural history in the East. But maybe now we can transition to talking more about the present and the future. So, um, you know, if we value old growth, how can we conserve it?
2: Yeah, I'll take this on, and then I, I have a point where I think I will turn it over to Bill. But I think the best I can do is try to kind of give a organizational context. So it seems like you know, we can make a long list of a whole bunch of things we could do to conserve old growth, but it, they all kind of fall into maybe three categories. One of them is we've got a lot of old growth out there in the East. We should be protecting it that should be a priority we probably should not be cutting down old growth forests in the east there's not enough of it left it's precious there's a lot we can learn from it as we'll talk about later it does a lot for us um, so we probably should not be cutting it down we should prioritize that in terms of funds investment of time et cetera, for conservation the second is we should be allowing some second-growth forests to develop into old growth. Or let me put it this way, to develop old-growth characteristics. So some of the things we value in these older forests, we should allow some second-growth forests to develop enough to begin developing, producing the characteristics that we value. There's a great quote, if I can find it, um, in our book from Bill McKibben. And this is actually from um, uh, it, it, this quote. Actually, comes out that I that I think is important to mention. So this was published in D6 by Harry Bird Davis, and it is called. Let me just make sure I get this right. Eastern old-growth forest prospects for discovery and recovery. So this was a really important time. This was kind of after the whole idea of doing research on old growth and the importance of old growth and in the pacific northwest some of the work that bill jerry franklin other people did in the pacific northwest then it moved to the east and this was a book that sort of captured what was going on and promoted it as well um in some ways our book you know you might think of is well what have we learned in the 23 years since that book was published Uh, but let me let me just read this to you you know in this Beautiful writing style of Bill McKibben. I think he could probably do a better job than I could do. So he said this. When we look at a hemlock on a slope above the cold river in the Berkshires, or a towering white pine south of Cranberry Lake in the Adirondacks, or a massive tulip poplar in a cove in the Smokies, we must not imagine that its glory devalues the second and third growth birch and beech a quarter mile distant. Instead, the majesty of the ancient forest makes this tentative wildness all the more valuable, for it shows what it might become one day. So that just says we have all these forests that have been developing for fifty years, for sixty years, for a hundred years, and we should allow some of those to develop the characteristics that we value in in what we call old growth today. So that's sort of a second category, and then the third is that perhaps there are ways that we can actually promote, actively promote some of those characteristics in these second growth forests. And this is my time to turn it over to Bill.
0: Okay, well, thanks, Drew. I mean, I guess I'll add a couple of of things here. One is just the, the realization that there's probably more old growth left in Eastern North America than we previously realized. You know, I think that if we went back to the 70s, maybe even the 80s, you know, and and asked the question, do we have old growth in the Eastern U.S.? A lot of people probably would have said, no, you know, it's just not really part of our landscape here. It's not something that people were used to thinking about. But that really changed, began to change in the late 80s and early 90s as people started to actually look for it. And the more they looked for it, the more they found. And in fact, we continue to find more fragments, more remnants of old growth than we ever previously imagined was here. And even in some parts of the Eastern U.S., like the Smokies, like the Adirondacks in New York, even some landscapes in Maine and and the White Mountains of New Hampshire, we find entire landscapes or entire watersheds covered by primary and old growth forests. And so... You know I think we've come to appreciate that that we have more of it here than we realized, and there is a real need for conservation of what of what is left so drew mentioned you know protecting the the half a percent or one percent of of forests that we have left that are in an old growth condition, but then we also really might want to think about restoring more old growth and and complementing the the outright protection of the last remaining examples. And to restore old growth, we could we could use a couple of different approaches. So as Drew mentioned natural restoration, if you will, is is more than likely to happen in some places where we have strictly protected forests. For example, in congressionally designated wilderness areas on national forests and strictly protected nature preserves and, and that sort of thing. Those are places that we might think of as forest aging areas where we can allow succession to run its course and we can allow all growth to redevelop. But there are lots of other places where we might want to take a more active approach. Maybe these are on uh, nature conservancy preserves or in habitat management areas on federal lands or a whole variety of different contexts where, where we might want to restore larger, more contiguous areas of older, more complex forest structures. And to do that, we're going to need a whole new brand of silviculture or, or way of managing forests. Silviculture really quickly is is just the art and science of managing forests forest vegetation, and uh, you know. I, but I think silviculture traditionally has been used to refer mostly to timber management, but it's always really important to remember that we can use silviculture for a whole variety of objectives, not just timber, but water, recreation, habitat, and restoration. So, you know, old growth is one of those, old growth restoration is one of those exciting new topics in silviculture. And there's just been an explosion of research in this area, in the Pacific Northwest, in The Upper Midwest, here in the Northeast, and now increasingly abroad in, in Europe and, and Australia and, and other places, uh, all all of which is exploring a, a huge variety of different techniques that we can use to to actively restore old-growth forests. I'll just try to summarize this really quickly. It basically uses it means using. A variety of forestry practices to essentially accelerate the rate at which forests develop, to push them along a bit faster, to give them a shot in the arm, so to speak, so that they start developing some of these old growth characteristics more rapidly. And, you know, again, 20 or 30 years ago, this was all just theoretical. Nobody had, had, had tried it. But since then, there has been um just a a, a huge, huge amount of experimentation in this topic. And we're actually seeing these old growth silvicultural techniques really coming online now, and people using them in a whole variety of situations. You know, everything from, um, you know, uh, pure, full-on old growth restoration, the kind of thing that you might do in a nature preserve, to um, something a little bit less where we're just incorporating some of these concepts into actively managed working forests and by the way this is maybe kind of the third element of an overall conservation strategy uh, which is the idea of building a little bit more of this old growth structure into the forests that we're actively managing for timber and for other objectives so conservation of remaining forests Restoration of of older forests where we don't have enough, and then finally, managing for old growth characteristics in our working forests. And so here again, we're talking about a spectrum of possibilities. It's never a one size fits all approach, but you know the idea that we can um, leave more big trees behind when we harvest a forest than we might otherwise have. We can enhance the amount of woody debris or large down logs on the forest floor we can even create unique structures like tip-up mounds and and irregularly shaped canopy gaps for example that are important for a lot of wildlife species we can build those characteristics into the forest that we manage and and you know there's a lot that we can say on that topic but that is one of these really exciting areas in forestry and silviculture
1: so we talked a little bit.
2: I just have oh, one ahead. really real yep. small thing to add here, and that is to point out that uh, that Bill has really played a leading role in developing some and testing some of these techniques. I know he's being very humble here, but, but his his work has really pioneered some of these these techniques. So, it's
0: oh, well, thanks, Drew. Pretty, thanks, neat, to pretty exciting yeah. to hear about them. Uh, I appreciate Sorry, that I plug. The, the sure. particular, I, since, since you brought it up, I guess I'll just mention that the particular approach that I've tested is something called structural complexity enhancement, trying to enhance the, these structural features that, that we know are important. So that's just one example, actually, of, of many approaches like this. But thanks again for the plug. Oh, sure.
1: Yeah, let's stay with the topic of uh, managing forests. And so we talked a little bit about working forests. So maybe we can talk about, you know, how could we manage forests in the east uh, to promote uh, things like carbon storage or higher stream qualities?
0: Okay, sure. So um, this idea of managing for old growth characteristics actually fits within a broader area or field that that foresters refer to more generally as ecological silviculture some people also talk about it as natural disturbance based silviculture but it it all basically means the same thing it means learning from forests that are have been less influenced by humans forests where we can observe uh natural dynamics related to disturbances like wind and fire and ice and beaver and, and insects and learning from those dynamics and then trying to emulate those through our silviculture or through our forestry practices. So that's what we refer to as ecologically based forestry. And, and old growth is kind of like a subset of that old growth silviculture. Okay, um, but But interestingly, we've learned that if we if we try to emulate those dynamics, if we, if we emulate natural disturbance regimes and we deliberately manage forests for some of these older characteristics, it turns out we can do a really good job also at providing a number of ecosystem services that, that humanity really depends upon. And by services, we mean the processes that an ecosystem carries out or the functions that it performs, like sequestering carbon or providing habitat for pollinators or regulating hydrology. We refer to those things as services. And it, it, it turns out that old growth forests, in particular, do an exceptionally good job at storing very, very high amounts of carbon, meaning they've already been sequestering or taking carbon out of the atmosphere through, through photosynthesis for centuries in many cases. And now they're storing that carbon that has been sequestered in biomass, above ground and below ground, living and dead. So we need to think of old forests as carbon reservoirs. In effect, this is carbon that's already in the bank. And we need to try to keep it there so that that carbon doesn't flux to the atmosphere. If, you know, for example, the forest was cut down or turned into a younger forest, so, part of of fighting climate change might include this idea of conserving remaining old growth forests as carbon reservoirs, so to speak, and also restoring more older forests that have very, very high biomass or high carbon storage. Um, this way. And and nobody, by the way, is arguing that this should be our only approach in carbon forestry or this is the only thing that we should do. Instead, we see this as part of a holistic carbon strategy, like an overall strategy that we can use uh, to, to enable forests to help fight climate change better. So, you know, carbon forestry includes lots of things. It includes managing Forests um, for higher growth and productivity. It includes you know, protecting forests from invasive species and insect outbreaks. It it includes um, managing forests for durable wood products that can store carbon themselves for long periods of time. So that's kind of holistic carbon forestry. But but what we're arguing for in this book, and by the way, there's a whole chapter devoted to the role of old growth forests in carbon cycling. We're arguing that old growth forests can make a contribution. They can be one element of that overall strategy, both by storing carbon that's already been sequestering, and also by sequestering uh, additional carbon if we manage these younger secondary forests for old growth characteristics. Okay, so that's just a brief summary of sort of the importance of of old growth and old growth silviculture for carbon storage and, and fighting climate change. There's another chapter in the book that is devoted to riparian forests. Riparian means streamside, so forests that are growing along streams and rivers and wetlands and lake shores. And this is really a fascinating area in ecology, one of those new frontiers. We've learned a lot about the ways in which forests influence surface water, like streams and rivers, over the last 20 or 30 years. And again, it turns out that older complex forests have very, very unique effects on stream systems. They influence the habitat in those streams for a huge range of, of fish and macroinvertebrates and other biota they influence the geomorphology or the the geometry of stream channels. Its, its sinuosity, its, its complexity. They influence things like flood regimes along streams and rivers. An old forest structure, for a whole variety of reasons, tends to dampen or buffer against flood floodwaters and reduce the intensity of, of flood events in, in small and mid-sized streams. So those are all really important functions that old forest streams provide. And so many people are interested in old growth now, you know, not even for biodiversity or for carbon, but... but Really specifically in terms of these stream functions. So that might include things like again protecting riparian corridors and, and restoring riparian buffers and allowing those to age and develop some of these complex old growth characteristics. Um, it also might include really specifically managing, in some cases, very, very carefully, very judiciously, some of these riparian forests for these old growth um, uh, architectural features and, and functions. So that's, uh, again, really on the cutting edge of a lot of the science, but is a, a very exciting and, and promising field. I'll, I'll leave it there unless Drew wants to add something.
2: Oh, that's great. Really a great summary of those two two issues.
1: Great. Well, you know, we've taken up uh, a lot of your time and I'm actually going to switch up my traditional final question and ask you both to respond to this. What is the uh, future of old growth in the East?
0: Um, (laughs) That's such a a big question. That's the million dollar question. And and we, we end the book exploring that question a little bit. We also explore it in a chapter on invasive pests and pathogens which of course uh, aside from climate change are probably the other uh, real real biggie in terms of global change more generally so i, I think that drew and i could probably both outline a, a variety of risks that old forests face both from climate change and invasive species but also other things like uh changing land use patterns and you know atmospheric deposition of, of pollution um so there are a whole variety of threats facing old growth, but but in, in many cases, those are the same threats that are posed by, or, or I'm sorry, that are facing forests in general. So old growth is, is no different in terms of facing these risks. But I think that it does signal that we need to be thinking about what old growth is going to look like in the future. And we need to ask the question, you know, is is the future of old growth the same as the past. And, and you know, how, how valid are these historic reference points or baselines that we're using to kind of guide a lot of our thinking around old growth conservation and management? And, you know, I think a lot of us have come to the conclusion that, we need to have a more fluid concept of old growth. We need to recognize that it's going to change into the future, just as all forests are. The species compositions might shift. Uh, the distribution of species ranges will change. Um, so, you know, the forests the forest of the future will look different from the forests of the past. And, and with threats like emerald ash borer and Asian longhorn beetle and beech bark disease and other invasive pests and pathogens, you know, we're seeing the... The, the wide scale, uh, if not exportation, you know, s- extirpation, significant reduction of, and hemlock uh, woolly delges, by the way, significant uh, reduction of many of the most important species in in our late successional forests of the Northeast. So the forests of the future will look different from the forests of the past, but I am convinced that old growth will persist or, or will remain in, in some form. I- I think that the structure or the architecture that we're talking about here in some ways will be more resilient to those changes than maybe will be the the specific composition of the forest or the specific mix of species. So in other words, we might have the same structure in the future, but with a different mix of species. And then I'm excited also by one final point, which is that there's some been some recent research uh, my lab and other labs have produced that shows that in, in many ways, older complex forests are more resistant to climate change than younger forests. And we could debate this, this point, but um, I think that we've been able to show that older forests are able to buffer themselves to a greater degree uh, against climate changes above than our younger forests. And in, in in other ways, they're also able to maintain the production of, the, of services like carbon storage and hydrologic regulation in the face of of climate change better than younger forests. This is some very, very complex science that we'd have to get into. But but, uh, just to uh, make a long story short, there's exciting science showing that old forests, in some ways at least, might be more resilient and resistant to climate change than younger forests. And and I think that the take-home message from that is that, again, old growth can be one part of of a much larger, more holistic adaptation strategy that we need to be thinking about. Drew, Great. you want to Drew? conclude?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think I think uh, yeah, there are a couple of things that maybe give us hope. You can probably tell that that natural disturbance is a really important part of all forests, and to the extent that these species are adapted to different kinds of disturbances, that may make them more resilient to further disturbance in the future from climate change and and other. Human-caused disturbances. So that's that's one point that I think uh, is maybe a hopeful point. Another is that we do know that in response to natural climate change in the past, that tree species—I'll just focus on those—have uh, migrated across the entire continents. So hopefully they'll be able to do that again. There is some question about that, and of course there is the big debate right now about whether we should be should now and in the future be assisting their migration by planting them in new places but that's a whole debate for another podcast i'm sure but those are some hopeful things and it seems like there's a little bit more of a focus on what old growth does rather than what it is i don't know if that makes sense in terms of habitat for wildlife what it does in terms of uh promoting habitat quality for streams rather than on the specific configurations of species that are in there. So I think there's an emphasis on that. And I I, I guess I feel the same way that Bill does, that old growth forests will continue to play that role, even if they look different and even if they have different species in them. That's my my hope, at least.
0: And I think we end the book with a a paragraph that says something like, with care and attention, future generations, We'll have the same experience that past generations have had of walking through a forest and, and being inspired by its grandeur or, or something like that. But I think that that summarizes our views. You know, with care and attention, we will have old growth in the future.
1: I think we're going to have to uh, leave it there for right now. I want to thank you both for being on the show. And I learned a lot and I hope the audience will learn a lot. And I encourage everybody to take a look at this book. This is Ecology and Recovery of Eastern Old Growth Forests by published by Island Press in 2018. The editors, uh, Andrew Barton and William Keaton, who are here with us today. And thank you both for being here.
0: Right, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.